Hi, I'm Kim Kardashian. For the last several years, I have been digging into a 1994 triple homicide case in Bucyrus, Ohio, the case of Kevin Keith. This case is complex, with many twists and turns, and the story has opened my eyes to the intricacies and pitfalls of the U.S. justice system. At its center is a man who believes to this day in his brother's innocence and a tight-knit community that was ripped apart. You will have questions about this story and may even question me as the one to tell it, but I encourage you to listen. I hope you find it equally as eye-opening as I have. This is The System. The System contains adult content and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. casings. In this room we have shards of glass. Boy, we have a blood spot on the floor. Blood spots all over in front of the door. We enter the living room area. In this room we have two bodies. One against the wall, which has been tentatively identified is Linda Chapman. Her top is resting on the feet of another body laying on its front, which has been tentatively identified as Marcella Chapman. There were four other people shot, three of them children. 30-year-old Kevin Keith was arrested at his home in Crestline, halfway between Bucyrus and Mansfield, he is charged with three counts of murder for allegedly killing three members of the Chapman family, including a four-year-old girl. Kevin, you're accused of heinous crimes. Children were shot. Did you do this? No, I didn't, Tanya. I love kids. I could never commit a crime like this. Never. Never. When I talked to you on the phone, you didn't seem nervous but you look nervous now. You look scared now. Are you sure it's him and you do know why and you're not telling? Well, I didn't go to bed last night worried that we had the wrong man. Not at all, not at all. I don't know that we've got the only man involved, but I'm very confident that we've made a good arrest here. Do you find it kind of strange that the police haven't questioned me at all about this? What do you think about it? I think it's a frame. Hey! 
They're just trying to speed everything up so the media don't catch up. They're relying merely upon the fact that it was a large black man that they saw in the project area and then being shown pictures of Kevin and a person saying, yeah, that's the person I saw that night. If that's the information they're relying on, that's not too accurate. Three others shot at the South Cyrus apartment did not die. And now our sources say the survivors, all three of them, have identified Kevin Keith as the gunman. I don't believe he did it. He ain't never been in no trouble like this before, so I don't believe he did it. Do you know who shot? No. I have an idea. It was Kevin something. You're sure? Is there any doubt in your mind at all? How you doing? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Good. Good to see you again. I haven't seen you in a while. It's been a while. I know. How are oh, you? you? Great. I'm oh, doing good. Thank you. Yep, I'm doing good. Good, good. I'm so glad they're letting us do this. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. The voice you're hearing right now is Kevin Keith's. At the time of this video call, Kevin is sitting in the Marion Correctional Institution. He's been in prison for the last 28 years. Last time I talked to you, you were, um, I got to meet some of your friends. Right. <laughs> and um, you got to meet some of my sisters. Right. Well, I've been um, pretty much, you know, doing what I do, and that's programs, mentoring and things like that. Just try to get guys in the right direction and um, keep myself in a good place. And that's pretty much my comfort zone when I'm busy and helping yeah. guys out, being their shoulder. Uh, that's pretty much it. Kevin was convicted of a triple homicide in Bucyrus, Ohio, in 1994. I don't get that chance to really talk to anybody because I got to be that guy for so many people. My mom, I got to be that you know, guy for family. I got to be that guy for inmates. I'm just that guy, okay? So I, I go outside and walk the yard sometimes. I'm talking to God, and I'm like, God, I just need a minute, okay? I just need one minute. Over the last few decades, Kevin has tried numerous times to get his case reevaluated. But that's what it is, so, you know, I gotta bear that. That's why I'm really hopeful with this podcast, just to get your story out there, because I think it's so important for people to understand that just our system is so fucked up. What else can we do? We can just get the story out there. And you know, hope that, that, you know, it gives people, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, Kim, I, I'm, I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm at that point to where I'm tired. And so, I don't know. The case of Kevin Keith and the Bucyrus Estates is deeply twisted and incredibly heartbreaking from all sides. But before I tell you about this case, let me explain why you're hearing it from me. Welcome back to Celebrity Family Feud, everybody. The Kardashian family once again. 
I did the show Family Feud a few years back, and one of the producers came up to me and said that he had a case. People always ask me, like, oh, my God, do you have a second? Like, I want to talk to you about this case of, like, a family member or someone that's really close to them. And one of the producers came up to me, and they pitched me Kevin Keith's case. It's being described as one of the worst murder cases in Bucyrus history. Six people were gunned down, two died instantly, and a third died less than an hour after the incident. Keith is charged with three counts of aggravated murder, which carry death penalty specifications, and three counts of attempted murder. He said from the beginning he's innocent. I've only been on the case about a year. It really spoke to me. The whole situation sucks, and I, I just don't feel like he was given a fair shot. Sometimes it's like, I, I sound like I'm bullshitting you. Like, I, like I, this is the reason why I'm so passionate about the case. It's like unbelievable to think that all of this exists in a file somewhere, and how come I'm the one looking through it? It's like, no, look at it with me. I'm not, <laughs> I'll show it to you too. I met Lori through the producer at Family Feud. My name is Lori Rothschild, and I am a television producer, and I specialize in true crime television. And so she came over with a huge notebook of details and information all about the case. It seems like she knew this case in and out better than any investigator I've ever met. And so when I sat down with her, I was so into it, and I asked her if I could keep her notebook, which was like her prized possession. Let me just pull this really quick. It's... uh a labor of love, this thing. And I just said, like, can I keep it through the weekend so I can just read through all of the evidence? I really want to, like, dig into this case. And she left it with me, and I gave it back to her on the Monday, and I was like, I'm in. I mean, it's still a work in progress, so I think it's six years of paperwork that has been accumulated in this binder. There's been so much work put into this. There's been so many people that have tried to help Kevin. I create these big binders to help me because there's so many small details, especially, you know, as an investigation happens. Looking at a police report, if you, if you read it in a linear fashion from top to bottom, page to page, you think you're getting all the information from it, right? But it's like, when did they say that is really important in a case like this. You have to follow the dates, not just the police reporting, but following the dates on all the reports to actually create the timeline for you to be able to see where the mistakes have been made. This timeline sounds straightforward at first, but the deeper we go, the more the reported events of February 13th are called into question. Pay attention to what's said here, because it's the backbone of the case. These details will come up later, and not everyone has the same story. The night before Valentine's Day 1994 in the town of Bucyrus, Ohio, a man approached apartment 1712B of the Bucyrus Estates complex sometime between 8.45 and 9 p.m. Six people were there that night in the apartment. Marichelle Chapman, her four-year-old daughter, Marche, and her boyfriend, Richard Warren, who had been living with her for the past few weeks. Marichelle was also babysitting her younger cousins that night, seven-year-old Juanita Reeves and four-year-old Quentin Reeves. 
Around 8.45 p.m., Marichelle's aunt, Linda Chapman, stopped by to pick up Quinita and Quentin on behalf of their mom, Joyce Reeves. Shortly after this time, a man started lingering around the door of the Chapman's apartment. Richard Warren opened the door, and the man asked to speak to Linda. Linda let him inside. The man engaged in some brief small talk about the basketball game on TV. Then he asked for a glass of water, which Linda got for him. Richard Warren described the man as having a turtleneck pulled up to his nose, covering his mouth. Warren reported that the man drank the glass of water through the fabric. After finishing the glass, the man pulled a gun out of the plastic bag he was carrying. He ordered everyone to get on the floor. Marichelle pleaded with the man not to hurt them, to which he responded with something along the lines of, well, you should have thought about this before your brother started ratting on people. Then, the armed man opened fire into the small apartment and fled the scene. Richard Warren, though wounded, was able to stand and make a run for it. He ran towards a nearby restaurant named Ike's, screaming for help. The gunman fired at Richard again outside, striking him once more and causing him to fall onto the snow. In her first statement to the police, a neighbor named Nancy Smathers reported seeing a large, stocky black male leave the home in a hurry and get into a light cream-colored car. The man revved the engine and peeled out, attempting to leave quickly. However, Smathers said he quickly lodged the car in a snowbank. Smathers reported seeing him rock back and forth to shake the car free from the snow before speeding away successfully. Smathers said the man she witnessed wore dark clothing, a winter coat, and a hat. She stated that his face was not covered, but she couldn't make out any discernible details. Richard Warren, bleeding from his multiple gunshot wounds, finally reached the nearby restaurant, Ike's. At 9.06 p.m., a 911 call was placed. Richard Warren was rushed to the emergency department of Grant Medical Center, while Juanita, Quentin, and Marche were brought to the Children's Hospital. 39-year-old Linda Chapman and 24-year-old Marichelle Chapman were pronounced dead at the scene. Four-year-old Marche Chapman died later that night at the hospital. Police Chief Joe Barron says a single gunman opened fire on the little girl and two women in their apartment complex Sunday night. The shooting, which occurred around 9 p.m., also left three others wounded. I looked inside and I just seen the bodies laying on the floor, two inside, one to the right and one to the left, and two smaller bodies, one in front of the couch, bent back, and the other one on its side over towards the TV. There was no movement or nothing. It just made me sick when I opened that door, seeing them little kids. Two days later, Kevin Keith was arrested at his fiancée's home in Crestline, Ohio, and taken into custody. He was charged with three counts of aggravated murder, as well as three counts of attempted aggravated murder. Kevin Keith was never questioned by the police. The protesters lined the sidewalk in front of the Crawford County Courthouse to show their support for Kevin Keith, charged with murdering a Bucyrus family on February the 13th. Kevin Keith's trial began on May 10th of 1994, only three months later. This is unbelievably and concerningly fast for a capital murder trial, 
Kevin was represented by defense attorney James Banks. Banks had never worked on a capital murder case before. Keith is charged with three counts of aggravated murder, which carry death penalty specifications, and three counts of attempted murder. He said from the beginning he's innocent. Keith, who was accompanied by defense counsel James Banks of Columbus, maintains his innocence and claims its mistaken identity. Uh, how would they come up with something like that then? I don't have any idea. Fair of me to say who you think did all this? I, didn't have, I wouldn't have any idea who would do something like this, especially in this area. You know, I would take somebody who was crazy, and I don't know anybody like that around here that would hurt those kids. There was lack of physical evidence presented during trial that explicitly linked Kevin Keith to the crime, such as forensic evidence or a weapon. Defense attorney James Banks said the state lacks evidence, including the murder weapon. They searched the apartment where the crime was committed. They considered fingerprints. They considered glass samples, fiber samples. And yet, not one piece of evidence was retrieved that would point to Kevin Keith. The trial lasted two weeks. Presiding Judge Nelford Kimmerlein will give the jury as long as it needs to reach a verdict in the Kevin Keith murder trial in Bucyrus. Otherwise, you can go for as long as you want to. We're certainly not pushing you to arrive at a decision. Kevin's friends and family expressed concern that the jury selected was all white, especially considering that the key witness, surviving victim Richard Warren, was also white. In fact, Richard Warren was the only victim that wasn't black. Keith's family and friends are still professing his innocence, and some are questioning the decision of an all-white jury. We're very hurt. Banks presented a good case. I don't think they heard, they heard anything. I don't know what the jury heard, what they thought, but we know that this is a racist town. Keith's family chanted, we love you, Kevin, as he was led out of the courtroom and back to the Crawford County Jail, where he's been since his arrest February 15th. If convicted, Keith could die in the electric chair. For Kevin's friends and family, the outcome was the worst imaginable. His execution day is said, how do you feel? We expected how do I look? We expected all this. This is the voice of Kevin's older brother, Charles Keith. Kevin's biggest advocate. And it seems like we went back to Warren's testimony to sink him when the prosecutor himself said, indeed, he, Warren, cannot identify Kevin with certainty. Now, how can he remember a speech? You're talking about fabrication. They lied. Everybody that got up on that stand and testified lied. And everybody that was in there listening knew that, even including to Judge Kimmelow. Russ, did you expect the outcome today to be what it was? Uh, no, I expected it because there was no there was no mitigating factors present in the case. This is Russell Wiseman, the prosecutor who presented the state's case against Kevin. And uh, given the the manner in which the crime was carried out, the motive for the crime, and the lack of any explanation uh, for uh, you know, or excuse, I, I really wasn't surprised. Like I say, I, I don't take any joy in these kind of cases. I wish it had never happened, but under Ohio law, I think the jury made the right decision. Keith's execution date is February 13, 1995, the one-year anniversary of the slayings. Reporting for WMFD, I'm Rhonda Davis. 
The court ultimately ruled that Kevin should serve the death penalty for the three murder convictions and also serve a seven to 25 year prison term for each of the attempted aggravated murder convictions. Of course, he wouldn't finish serving that time before he was executed. As Kevin sat on death row, he watched his petitions and appeals be continuously denied by the court system. Eventually, he fired his lawyers and took the case upon himself for a while. His brother, Charles, helped investigate. In 2007, Kevin sought new representation in Rachel Troutman, assistant state public defender. In 2010, the year of Kevin's scheduled execution, Troutman petitioned for clemency. Only a higher governmental power could change Kevin's fate. And now it rested in the hands of Ohio Governor Ted Strickland. State defense attorneys say new evidence clears him. The Ohio Parole Board must recommend and Governor Strickland must grant clemency for Mr. Keith. Any other result would be irreversible, sickening, and a tragic mistake. Keith's brother Charles helped deliver 10,000 signatures to Governor Ted Strickland Tuesday, urging him to stop next month's planned execution. Finally, Governor Strickland commuted Kevin's death sentence only 13 days before Kevin was scheduled to be executed. Now, Kevin is serving a life sentence at the Marion Correctional Institution. In other words, though Kevin narrowly escaped capital punishment, he is facing life in prison, and in his mind, it's another slower death sentence. Today, Kevin's legal team is preparing to file for clemency for parole a process in which a higher authority, in this case, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, would be considering Kevin's case for a reduced sentence or reinstated rights. Kevin Keith, his family, and his legal team are hoping for a pardon, a commutation to time served, which would release him immediately, or at the very least, the possibility of parole. This case actually is the very first case I ever opened as a wrongful conviction that I ever even considered to be a part of. Again, this is Lori Rothschild. It crossed my desk through another case I was working on. I remember my friend saying, you should look into the case of Kevin Keith. Do you know the Kevin Keith case? And I said, I don't, I don't know. It's a wrongful conviction case. I thought in my mind, well, everyone says they're innocent. And how hard is it to prove that someone actually didn't commit a crime? They were convicted by a jury of their peers. You know, this is the system that I believed in because I came from a law enforcement family. I think the first piece of information that I saw was that a local Cleveland magazine had done an article on Kevin Keith. In this article, they talk about another person being paid to commit this crime. And, and the police knew about it. In me just looking into that part of it, it started the twist of all of the other things that were so wrong with this case. And I also realized that that information about that other person being paid to commit the crime didn't come out until like 2007. Kevin was convicted and the crime happened in 94. And that's how he got his clemency. Why didn't they give him life with parole? You're just basically leaving someone in prison to die. Was someone paid to commit this crime? I was intrigued by this. 
Like Lori said, that information didn't surface until 2007, over 10 years after the crime took place. We'll get into the alternative suspects later, but there's a lot of ground we should cover first. Hello? Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Kim. Um, Hi. Okay, so I have another case that I want you guys to look at and see what you think. It's a case in Bucyrus, Ohio, and it's about Kevin Keith, who was sentenced to death for a triple homicide. A family was involved. I have read over all of the evidence. His sentence was commuted, so he um, was relieved of the actual death penalty pretty close. Right now, you're hearing me discuss Kevin Keith's case with my personal legal team, which includes attorneys Aaron Haney and Jessica Jackson. These are the two same attorneys that I worked with on my first wrongful conviction case that I took on, the Alice Johnson case. She was in prison, a life sentence without the possibility of parole for a nonviolent drug offense that was her first offense. When I looked at it, I just didn't understand how their first time nonviolent drug offense got the same exact sentence as Charles Manson. Like that to me didn't make sense. And I thought, okay, there's something wrong with our system. So I sent the video to one of my attorneys Sean Hawley, who actually was an attorney on the OJ case with my dad, and we always stayed connected. We looked into it, and I thought, well, what can I do? Who can change us? Everyone told me that the president, that Donald Trump, was the only one that can commute her sentence and give her a pardon. And so I was advised um, by a friend to call Ivanka, and she connected me with her husband, Jared Kushner, who reviewed the case, looked it all over, brought it to the president, and within a few months, we got her sentence commuted. After more than 20 years behind bars, this was Alice Marie Johnson's first full day of freedom. She was released from federal prison in Alabama late yesterday after President Trump commuted her life sentence on a drug conviction. Mr. Trump tweeted today, good luck to Alice Johnson. Have a wonderful life. I'm feeling no handcuffs, mm. nothing on me. I'm free to hug my family. That was just like unheard of that we were able to get that done. And I couldn't just stop at that. I saw how successful we were with that. And I want to just do more. So I figured like Alice was the face to show people, hey, like it's okay if we let people out. See, she's a sweet great grandmother that like would never harm anybody. And to me, that put the face on reform and why people deserve to be out. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would be Kim Kardashian who would take my calls on. In prison yesterday, she got a call. It was Kardashian West. When she said home, just that word, I could go home now. I started screaming and jumping. And so he he has, I think, right, life without parole, though, right? Yeah. Wasn't that that what they commuted yeah. it to? Which yeah. would mean he would never get a chance to be free. Um, yes. So part of what you're doing, it sounds like, is trying to get enough attention and support so that he would have a chance at justice and freedom. Recording this all, interviewing him, his brother, 
anyone that would talk to us on the other side, all sides, and creating a podcast. Maybe from hearing this, someone will come forward, maybe just by publicizing this. reason to be on the outside right now okay i mean think think about this this is what haunts me okay this is what haunts me this is where my demons come in is the fact that i could have been executed Mm -hmm. in 2010 Mm -hmm. september 15th my attorneys rachel and my attorneys came up with all this information a lot of this new information after the fact. Now, they came up with a lot of information before that you would have thanked the court. The judicial system would have said, wait a minute, let's put the brakes on this. Okay? Well, okay, we'll give them that. But since then, they've come up with all this information that the state was using against me to prove my innocence. And I'm still sitting here. So that's the judicial system for me. I know. And that's the case for so many people. And it's so unfair. And it, like, infuriates me. I mean, I, I, I... It, I can only imagine how you feel, and I can't even begin to put myself in your shoes. I just didn't think that you could be made a victim by the judicial system. I didn't know the judicial system would actually create a victim. Like, it seems like it's stuff that just happens in the movies. Like, you really don't think exactly. that it's a reality. Exactly. Um, and especially when it's clear. It's just, they, they broke everything down. They exposed everything. And I'm still sitting here 28 years later. I've probably only told one person and used this word that I'm innocent. And um, the reason for that is because, you know, people don't want to hear it, especially from the outside. They don't want to hear it because they figure like every inmate running around is innocent. That's what they think. But that ain't the reality of the situation. There's not too many guys I've met over the years say they was innocent. But I say that to say that I can't approach young people and encourage them with the narrative of I'm a victim, even though I'm a victim. Because in order for me to reach them, I cannot complain. This is what I mean by sometimes I'm overwhelmed because I have to go with the responsibility. I talk a lot of times to recovery service while I volunteer at and chair meetings and things like that. And so the first thing I do is I take responsibility because I teach this one program called Boyhood to Manhood. And this is rites of passage program. And so six of the principles that we stress to the guys is, is authority, responsibility, envy, sexual temptations, repentance, and courage. Those are the six principles. And so with those principles right there, I got to stand on those principles and always go back to me. And because of my generation, a lot of young guys that I'm talking about locked up in prison, their fathers are my age. So we kind of dropped the ball on these young guys. So the first thing I had to do coming out the box, I got to take responsibility for myself and for their fathers. So now they got a connection because a lot of them didn't have that. So now when they look at me, I don't want them to see a victim. I want them to see somebody that made some bad choices over his life, okay? Taking responsibility for those choices and uh, moving forward. You've heard a lot of pretty unbelievable things about this case by now. How there was a lack of physical evidence, how the jury may have been stacked against Kevin, 
how a report surfaced later and highlighted another potential suspect, and that's just scratching the surface. There are a lot of details that haven't been available to the general public, and that's my goal, to make sure that you can all hear the facts and make your own determination. Because sometimes, our system is not as trustworthy as we're led to believe. We'll get into all of these topics and more during this podcast. But as I said before, this case is not black and white, and there's more than one side to this story. Talk about them. I talk about them all the time. I talk about them to my friends, how much I miss them, you know, and a lot of the good times we had together and stuff. And that I wish, I just wish they were still here. This is Damon Chapman, victim Marichelle Chapman's brother. When I heard about it, somebody called me, maybe called me or texted me, I don't know, but, and I, they was like, I think there was a shooting at there out there in the United States. And we was like, oh, we're on our way over there now. As soon as we get over there, we see all the police over there by my sister's house. So we run in there. The police tried to stop me from going in the apartment. They wasn't stopping me. I go in there. My sister was laying beside my aunt, and my niece was running up. This, she was running up the steps. She was face down, face down on the steps with two shots in her back. I mean, I would, I'll never forget it. Never. Me and my cousin Charles, London's son, knew who did it as soon as we walked in there. We knew it. We both looked at each other once they made us come outside, and me and Charles looked at each other and was like, Kevin did this. And we knew it. We knew Kevin did it. I'm Kim Kardashian, and this is The System. The System is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Big City TV and Tenderfoot TV. I'm Kim Kardashian, your host and executive producer. From Big City TV, executive producer is Lori Rothschild and Saldi. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Lead creative producer is Meredith Stedman. Production, editing, and sound design by Tristan Bankston and Cameron Taggy. Additional sound design by Cooper Skinner. Production manager is Tracy Kaplan. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Voiceover work by Miles Agee. Associate producer is Jamie Albright, mixed and mastered by Cooper Skinner and Devin Johnson.